Father, we are grateful that we can come here just as we are and to be swept away by your mighty love. And I pray for each and every heart that is in this room and those that are joining uh, elsewhere, Father, that you would unite us in spirit and truth by your incredible grace, that each and every one of us would be able to acknowledge our need for your grace, our need for your mercy, our need for your compassion, your forgiveness, your strength. Father, that we would be reminded that it is there in our weaknesses that we find the sufficiency of the cross, the sufficiency of your grace. And so as we spend this time together in your word, Father, we pray that that grace would once again stir our hearts towards a greater love, a greater devotion, a greater courage for you. Father, that we would find comfort, we would find all the things that our souls are longing for today by your amazing grace. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, church, good morning. It's good to see you. How is everybody doing today? Doing well? Good. It's good to see you. Before we get uh, started with today's message, I want to provide just a quick update as it pertains to some things related to the church uh, and, and some of our protocols. Uh, to mask or not to mask? That is the question, apparently. And as many of you saw and heard probably from this last week, the governor's uh, decision to not continue the mandate across the state of Texas to wear a mask led to several organizations and businesses and schools and churches to figure out uh, how does that impact our protocols and our procedures. And so we sent out an email last week saying, hey, we're aware of this change. We'll talk about it later, uh, was basically what the gist of the email was. And so uh, we don't have any uh, definitive updates to our, to our protocols to offer to you today. Uh, but I did want to go ahead and just to use this as an opportunity to remind you of the manner in which we have uh, developed those protocols in the past and the way that we've tried to facilitate some of these decisions throughout this entire pandemic. So that should we come forward with any updates or changes, you guys can know uh, kind of what went into that process. I just wanted to take this opportunity to remind you of those things. Uh, so for the last uh, year almost now that we've grappled with this pandemic, one of the first things that we have relied upon is prayer. Uh, that's stating the obvious, hopefully, but uh, it's one of the things that I don't want to make light of because we really have uh, relied upon God to, to be the guide and director for all of these difficult decisions that we've all had to face. And uh, if you've asked me personally at any point in this last year what you could be praying for me, probably the number one thing you heard me ask for was wisdom, uh, wanting wisdom to know how to help, yes, lead and facilitate here, but really in all aspects of life, uh, wisdom as a mother uh, and father, Jennifer and I have asked for that, wisdom as, as uh, parents for school, for relationships, of course, the church. I mean, we just needed it as so many things have been disrupted. And so uh, that has carried into our decision-making process, and we will continue uh, to cover these things in prayer and let God be the anchor for how we move forward. Uh, the other thing that we've tried to demonstrate along the way is that we want to make decisions that are informed. And so we, we've done uh, what research we can along the way. And one of the hard things about this pandemic is there really is uh, no level of expertise Right? I mean, it's new for everyone, and so the information changes, it, it develops, and so we've had to adapt along the way, but I would encourage you to say that we have done our best to be informed, uh, to listen to the people that are uh, helping make decisions, uh, to look at different studies, to consider what is it like here in a church, and how is that different, what does it mean when you're singing, or you're not singing, or you have children. We, we try to make these decisions uh, as informed as possible, and we will continue to do that as we move forward. Uh, we, we make these decisions collaboratively. 
this is not a unilateral decision. This is not Jeremiah sitting at home going, here's what we're doing. Uh, that's not how this process has unfolded. It's not how it's going to unfold. Uh, we, we collaborate, and, and that has, yes, primarily uh, rested with the staff, and the staff has done a great job bringing their different perspectives and vantage points to how their ministries are impacted and so on and so forth. Uh, but we've collaborated with you all as a church family. We've had several occasions where we had surveys and Q&A sessions and opportunities for us to hear from you. We still want to hear from you. If you have thoughts, feedback, concerns, observations, then, then this is something we want to see as collaborative so that we can make uh, that informed decision uh, to include your perspective as well. Uh, and then the other thing that we've done along the way that I would just reiterate is we've uh, fostered and encouraged a culture of grace and understanding. Uh, one of the things that we've all witnessed at this point in the pandemic is that uh, when it comes to protocols and guidelines, people have different comfort levels uh, of what they are willing or not willing to do, and, and we understand that. And uh, sadly, when you looked out in the culture, we've seen that those things have caused certain levels of strife and conflict and division, and we just strongly believe that doesn't need to exist in the church. Uh, and so we want to be gracious to, to everyone and understand that people around you are going to have different comfort levels, and some people will be on one side, one people will be the other, but we're going to extend grace and understanding to all. And you, you all as a church family have done a phenomenal job of that, and I'm so proud of you and would encourage you to continue to do so as we move forward. Um, and so that's, that's how we will continue to uh, evaluate any additional updates that take place in our country as this pandemic unfolds and we get new information. And so we'll take time this next week to revisit it as a staff. It's always good to revisit policies and things, and then we'll, we'll provide any updates if, if there are any and uh, let you guys know. But in the interim, we just, again, continue to appreciate your feedback and covet your prayers. So that's where we are. Sound good? Okay. Matthew chapter 20. Let's get to the scripture. Let's do that. Let's do some time in God's word. So we've been working through the season of Lent, and one of the things that I've encouraged you along the way is to make this season of Lent an opportunity to really reflect on your personal relationship with Jesus, right? That, that we want this to be an opportunity for you to really do some introspection and, and, and evaluate what your relationship with Jesus really looks like right now. And, and the idea behind that is that as you go through this journey, you have an opportunity to, to take that personal reflection to kind of see, as we often pray, how God's power is at work in your life, right? That's, that's one of the main prayers that we pray. And so you're, you're hopefully uh, having an awareness to that and being encouraged by those things. And, and one of the ways that we uh, try to facilitate that during the season of Lent is that as we go through this Lenten devotional and take time on Sunday mornings, when you see these names of Jesus, you're considering them from a personal point of view, right? What does it mean to have Jesus as my Savior? Uh, what does it mean for me to see him as Son of God, right? You, you want to have that personal lens along the way, and, and hopefully that helps you understand a little bit more about your relationship with Christ. And, and so for the last two Sundays, it, when you think about the names that we have focused in on, if we have accentuated anything up to this point, I would argue that we've really accentuated the divinity of Jesus, right? I mean, yes, Jesus was a common Hebrew name, Yeshua, but when you look at the definition of that name, Yahweh saves, and even the angel's proclamation, he's given this name because he will save their, his people from their sins. I mean, that is, that is a, a divine element of rescue, right? That is, that is a, a name that implies deliverance and, and strength and power. Son of God does, does some of the similar things, right? It, it accentuates the divinity 
of Jesus. Now, both encapsulate the, the fullness of Jesus, and we tried to make sure that we did that in our discussions, but no doubt those first two names really accentuate that aspect of it. What's so remarkable about Jesus is the way he infuses the divine with the common, right? That it's this, this amazing juxtaposition of the high with the low. And so when you think about terms that are typically associated with names of elevated status, right, like a king, and, and you think about other terms that are typically ascribed to somebody with that sort of power or authority, you're going to use words like majesty, your highness, lord, right? It's, it's terms of, of royalty. That's typically what you hear. You don't usually hear words of the common world, word, world like servant, and yet that's exactly what you have with Jesus. And that's the name and the title we're gonna look at today, is that while he encapsulates the divine, he infuses it with the common, and yes, he is son of God, but he's also a servant. And that is an incredible thing to behold. And so the way we're gonna look at that today is really by using two passages of scripture. We're gonna start in Matthew chapter 20, where we get an insight to how Jesus kind of uh, accentuates the importance of service, and then we're gonna spend some time at the later part of the message looking at a very common example of Jesus' servant-heartedness through the washing of the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. So those are gonna be the two areas of focus today. So let's take a look in Matthew chapter 20 and read uh, a really powerful story that gives us a good picture of servanthood. Starting in verse 20, it reads, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus told them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, really, really cool story, really interesting exchange that takes place here. Here's, here's uh, Jesus, and here comes this mother of two of the disciples, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, right? Here, here comes this mother up to Jesus, and she has a question for him. He says, what is it that you want? Now, one of the things that I wanna point out to you about the way that this conversation unfolds is that it tells us that uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they're, they're actually there with her. Okay, so they're by her side when this whole exchange takes place. So, so that means that they were giving approval to this conversation. They knew what she was about to ask and they were in favor of it. It's not like they were kind of off to the side hanging out with the disciples and they looked back over and they see their mom talking to Jesus and they're like, mom, so embarrassing. You know, like that's not what was taking place. They knew what was going on. And, and so here's the question, will you allow one of my sons to sit at your right and one of them to sit at your left. And this was obviously a question of, of significance, right? A question of importance, of authority. That when they see Jesus in this role of king, of savior, Messiah, 
they envisioned this consummation of this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, right? They didn't have it fully understood yet. And so what they were asking is, give my two sons the most important seats, your right and your left. Because it was understood that if you were to serve a king, the greater proximity to the king meant the more important you were, right? And so if you were to the right and to the left, you shared in that king's power, that king's authority, his preeminence. And so that's what she's asking for. And it's, it's interesting to consider Jesus' response. I almost envision him chuckling as he hears this question. He says, you don't even know what you're asking. And, and can you really drink from the cup that I'm about to drink? And obviously Jesus is referring to the suffering, the crucifixion that's about to unfold, which they have not grasped yet, right? They're envisioning a totally different sort of a kingdom. And so there's this miscommunication, there's this confusion. And so he's like, can you even really drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they answer, of course we can, right? Envisioning this, this role of power and authority. Now Jesus likely sees the irony in that, realizing that they don't even know what they're saying they're gonna do, but also recognizing that they will actually drink from this cup of suffering. He knows that they will remain loyal. He knows that suffering awaits them. And so he agrees, well, you will in fact drink from this cup. But then he tells them, it's not my place to assign who sits on my right or my left, right? Those things have been predetermined by the Father. And as he's offering this explanation, the other 10 overhear it. And now they become indignant, right? Frustrated, angry that this conversation has even taken place. Now, there's a chance because it doesn't say explicitly why they were frustrated. Maybe they were coming with that frustration with a holy rebuke of their two other disciples to say, how dare you ask a question like that? You should maintain a posture of humility and dignity. That's not an appropriate question. But based on Jesus's response, what's more likely is that this indignation, this frustration was coming from the fact that they knew that these two other disciples were positioning themselves for greater levels of importance and they might be left out. They knew that this question was really about comparing themselves amongst each other. Who was the greatest? Who was the most important? And that argument began to emerge. Now, it's easy at times for us to read stories like this and see these responses from the disciples and just kind of shake our heads and be like, oh, you silly disciples. You never get it, do you? Right? And kind of minimize their reactions. When in reality, we all know that this is very indicative of the human experience because what we're witnessing here is a glimpse, a snapshot of the 12 disciples scrambling for power. They're trying to rank themselves in comparison to one another. And that's something we do all the time. Don't we? Don't we constantly play this comparison game that somehow, be it subconsciously or consciously, allows us to rank ourselves in comparison to the people around us? We're always doing this. And so let me ask you a question. How do you rank yourself? And I don't mean like, where do you rank yourself? Well, I'm probably 10th on a list of 50. You know, I mean like, not saying that. But like, what do you use? What metrics do you use to determine how you compare yourself to others and how you rank in comparison to those around you. We, we do this as early in childhood, right? Like you can watch it in the innocence of children coming together and say, hey, let's race. Let's play tag, right? And through all these activities and events, all of a sudden children are able to ascertain a certain ranking within their own social structure. 
right? Well, this person's the fastest, this one's the oldest, this one's the youngest, this one's the funniest, this one's the best reader, this one's the best at math, and they're able to quickly rank themselves in comparison to one another. And it would be great for us to be able to look at us, to look at each other today and be like, isn't it great that we grow out of that? But you all know we don't, right? Our comparisons just become more sophisticated and nuanced. And so what do you use to rank yourself in comparison to others? Isn't it interesting how quickly it can happen? Like almost just uh, can catch you off guard subtly. A lot of times it happens in a simple conversation. Let me me highlight just a couple of examples because there are numerous ways that we do this. But it could be a simple conversation with a friend, colleague, uh, neighbor, right? And all of a sudden you're listening in that conversation and that person begins to talk about something they've recently done or, or have acquired, right? Like, oh, we, we just went on this awesome trip. It was so great. We got to go vacation here or something they purchased for their home, right? A, a new car that they're able to get and clothes, um, an event they're going to, something, right? And they're just telling you a story. And that ignites this voice in your head. Right, it's the beginning of envy. You go, man, that's cool, I wish I could do that. Now envy can quickly be snuffed out, right? You could hear that voice and just move on and it not affect you, but when it's fostered and it's given a little bit more fuel, what does that question lead to? Not just, oh, that's cool, I wish I could, but could I? And you begin to compare. Am I able to do those same sorts of things. Now, what typically happens when these conversations emerge, especially when it's related to material possessions or experiences, what we're using to rank ourselves is money. At the end of the day, right? Do I have the money and the time and the ability to take that kind of a trip, to buy that sort of furniture, to buy those sorts of clothes, to go on that sort of an event? How do I compare to this person? We rank ourselves with money all the time, which is why you could get out your phone right now and Google who's the wealthiest person in the world and find a list of rankings. We're constantly comparing ourselves and ranking ourselves based on money. Another way that we rank ourselves and compare ourselves is relationships, right? It's not what you know, but who you know, right? The real annoying aspect of this are the people that name drop all the time, you know those folks that are constantly referencing people of status and fame that they might know or experiences they had with them. But it doesn't have to just be the name-dropping folks. Like, it's really just relationships in general, right? We, we determine a lot of our sense of worth by the amount of or the type of relationships we have. Who's called me? Who can I call? Right, look, I was included on this birthday party. Here's the picture. I'm going to put it on social media to show everybody I was included. Look at my friends. Right, and we're constantly determining our sense of worth and value based on relationships. And what's complicated this in our world today is the rise of social media, where all of a sudden the social commodity of relationships has just exacerbated the comparison game, right? Because now you can quantify your relationships with followers and likes and shares and comments, and you can literally track your ranking and your significance and your importance in comparison to others. And it's created a new phenomenon, right? Because the more followers you have, the more uh, status you have in this world of social media, you can actually make a career out of it. You heard of influencers, right? I mean, it's fascinating the way that this is shaping people's view of, of life and work itself. 
right? Because what an influencer can do is gain all these different social commodities, these relationships, and, and make money off of it, right? Because once you reach a certain ranking or status, you're going to have brands and companies come and track you down and say, hey, we'll give you money if you talk about this product or this experience. And some people are charging like hundreds of thousands of dollars a post to endorse an experience or a product. And so what's happened is that people have seen this and they're so infatuated with it, it has become like one of the number one things people are aspiring to. There was a, a poll that was done by, by Harris Survey and Polling uh, not too long ago, and they asked that, that age-old question that you tend to ask kids, hey, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And I think it was in the age ranges of like eight to 13 that this polling was done. And for decades, the, the leading answers to that question have been more or less the same. I wanna be an engineer, I wanna be a, a doctor, a teacher, an astronaut, an athlete. But now you know what the leading one is? I wanna be a YouTuber. Like that's the number one thing kids age 18, eight uh, to 13 wanna be. And it's not just young kids, right? I, I found another quote in People Magazine. They were referencing a study that was done by a marketing research company. I think it was called Morning Consultant. And uh, they discovered 86% of people ages eight, no, I think it was 13 to 39 want to be an influencer on social media, right? Like this, this is us all playing this game of ranking, right? So it could be money, it could be relationships, but we are comparing ourselves, trying to gain status, gain some form of influence to, to help drive our sense of self-worth. Here's the irony, more often than not, when we play this game of comparison to try to bolster our self-esteem, it actually does the opposite. You ever notice that? In fact, there is a, an article written by Eileen Aaron who wrote for Psychology Today. She, she gives a great quote <clears throat> referencing just how instinctive this is and how aware we are of it. She says, it dawned on me that low self-esteem, <clears throat> not high, low self-esteem, is about power and influence and the result of rank. Like other social animals, we constantly rake ourselves among others, competing and comparing, and we always know everyone else's rank in the social hierarchy while trying to maintain or raise our own. And as a result, it often leaves us emptier rather than more fulfilled. Why is that? Let me, let me elaborate a little bit further. What is it that you use to rank yourself in comparison to others? However you answer that question, money, if it's relationships or something else, whatever that is, is what you worship. Because what you're ultimately doing is allowing that thing to assign value to you and others around you, right? You're giving money the power to determine your worth and the worth of others. You're giving relationships the power to determine your worth and the worth of others. You're worshiping its ability to make you feel something it can't. And that's what idols do. They make you feel empty. So we find ourselves worshiping the wrong thing. And that's what's taking place here with these disciples. It's that human tendency to rank themselves in comparison to one another. Here's where we need to give the disciples credit. <clears throat> as confused and as misguided as they are, at least they were asking Jesus. Right? At least they knew none of us are going to supersede the rank of Christ. 
None of us are going to elevate above him, so let's at least ask him. Let's, let's see how he would assign value among us. At least they asked the right person, and thankfully they did because it gives us an incredible answer. So what is Jesus' response? Right? He starts by drawing their attention to the world around them, right? the world of the Gentiles, where there are rulers, there are officials, and how do they use power? How do they use influence? Man, they lord it over you. And what Jesus is getting ready to say is what you see in the world around you is not how we do it. We do not follow the example of the world. You see the Gentiles do this, not so with you. And then the the heart-piercing answer, you want to be great? Become a servant. You want to be first? Become a slave. Now that was shocking. Right, that, that was totally culturally revolutionizing. Right? I mean, that was something completely different for them. Right? You think about how, the contrast. For, for the Greeks that were going to be reading Matthew later, right, in particular, they, they came from a background where humility was not a virtue, it was a vice. Right? It, was, it was undignified. You were born to be served. And so to all of a sudden have that be the the description from Jesus would have been uh, totally revolutionary for them. The Jews, they at least came from a background that, that had as its foundation, love your neighbor as yourself. So they understood the idea of servanthood. But what had happened in later Judaism is that they had created this sort of distinction, this almost caste-like system between the righteous and the unrighteous. And so the unrighteous didn't deserve any of it. Right? And so the service that they may have offered would have been more focused in in uh, ex- exclusive than what Jesus desired. So he's offering this answer to challenge the Greeks and to purify the Jews. You want to be great? Serve. You want to be first? Become a slave. So it's re- remarkable, right? To, to serve, in its simplest definition, means to give assistance to, to take care of, right? And it was typically used in the common vernacular to refer to those who would be, <clears throat> excuse me, serving or waiting upon at a table, right, like in a meal. It's the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon. And that was the simplest usage for it initially. And Jesus comes in and claims that word and gives it a whole new level of meaning. And so what we see through Jesus' example and his teaching here is that that sort of servanthood, that sort of assistance, that sort of care is anything that is sacrificial in nature, right? It's not just serving food at a table. Yes, it is feeding the hungry, it's caring for the sick, right? It's, it's caring for the orphan, the widow, all the things that Jesus was doing in his ministry. He's saying anything that allows you to sacrificially meet the needs of others is the life of service that I'm calling you to. That's how you define yourselves. You don't worry about what you can gain for yourself. You worry about the value that is already instilled in others. And he points to himself as the prime example, right? As the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the end of that statement there is likely referring to Isaiah 52 and 53, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, if you're unfamiliar with them. It's it's the passage of Scripture where we get so many well-known references and quotes like, we all like sheep have gone astray, each turning to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, right, by his wounds, we are healed. It's this passage of Isaiah that, that describes the crucifixion and the suffering of the Messiah. 
And so it's commonly referred to, if you were to turn there, you'd probably see a subheading in your Bible that refers to it as the suffering servant. In the opening line of that passage of Scripture, that section says, see, my servant will act wisely. This is why we see this as a specific title for Jesus. He is the ultimate suffering servant. And so Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling Isaiah 52 and 53. I am that suffering servant. And if this is the life I'm leading, then as my followers, it's the life you should lead as well. Remarkable perspective. And and implied within this discussion is that Jesus understands that he has the right to be served, right? And yet he chooses not to be, which is part of what makes his model and example of service so remarkable, which is why I love what we find in John chapter 13. Go ahead and turn there because this is a great depiction of how Jesus doesn't just teach these words but lives by them, right? In John chapter 13, we get a very common story that's very very well known. It's the the story that leads to uh, the washing of the disciples' feet. It's nearing the end of Jesus' life in ministry and this is how he decides to choose to spend some of his final moments with his disciples. So let me, let me read the story to you, and then I've just got a couple of observations for it, of it for us today. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you not realize now what I'm doing, but later, later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. <clears throat> so <clears throat> one of the things that I love about John chapter 13 is as powerful as that whole example is, is the way that John introduces this section, right? Verse one ends with that statement <clears throat> that he loved them to the end. And, and that's a pretty interesting translation there. Now, John chapter 13, to give you some context, is setting the stage not just for this moment where he's washing the disciples' feet, but really everything that's about to unfold, right? The final moments of Jesus's life, uh, the, the arrest, the, the mockery, the beatings, the crucifixion, all of it. And so chapter 13, verse 1, in many respects, could be seen as an introduction to everything that's about to unfold. And another way to translate the end there is not to say that Jesus is loving them to the end of his life, 
But another way to translate it is the full extent of his love. Right? In fact, several other versions, that's how it's translated. So what it's saying here is we're seeing the limits of Jesus' love and essentially that his love has no limits. Right? He, is, he is showing the full extent of his love by his servant nature to not just to wash their feet but to die for them. Right? And so, so we set the tone with it being an understanding of the love of Christ and then you get this incredible uh, kind of contrast between Jesus and Judas. Right? Because verse 2 brings in Judas. Now we already know that Judas had been prompted by Satan to betray Jesus and he'd already resolved it in his heart. And, and you get this picture throughout this story of the difference between Judas and Jesus. Right? With Judas, you have somebody of, of lower status grabbing and grasping for greater rank, greater worth, greater value. Right? Whatever it was that, that the devil used to prompt Jesus, was it a love for money? Was it a fear of later persecution and arrest? Was it jealousy? Whatever it was, he was taking this moment to try to strive and acquire for himself greater rank, greater status by betraying Jesus. Whereas with Jesus, the one who is actually of greater significance and of greater importance, chooses not to acquire that for himself, but chooses servanthood. It's an incredible picture an incredible contrast right here in the midst of it. And here's, here's what I love about it the most. Look at verse three again. I love this. Look at verse three. Right before Jesus washes the disciples' feet, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Literally, that's what Jesus knew right before he does this. If there was ever a moment that Jesus was going to demand to be served, this was it. Like he knew exactly who he was, that all power had been placed under him, that he was from God and returning to God. He knew what was about to unfold. He knew it was the last meal. He knew it was his last moments, that he was about to endure incredible agony and pain and suffering. If there was ever a moment where Jesus would look at his disciples and say, guys, please, just this one night, it's my last meal, it's my last time here, I'm gonna need so much energy, so much focus, would you please just serve me tonight? If there was ever a moment to request to be served and feel like it was owed, it was this one. And what does he do? He sets all of it aside takes off his outer garments, a tremendous gesture of humility, wraps a towel around his waist and washes the disciples' feet. This was an act that was viewed in this culture to be the greatest, um, most, most degrading act of service for a man to do, right? It, it was seen to be reserved just for um, Gentile slaves, which is why Peter responds the way that he does, right? It was appalling. Literally, he was just like, whoa, you're going to wash my feet? Never, right? This, this doesn't, no, this, this is totally inappropriate. And so Jesus responds, he goes, well, listen, if you don't let me do this, then you have no part in me. And so true to Peter's form, he totally overreacts. All right, well, then wash my hands and my head as well, man. Let's go, let's do this, you know? And Jesus is like, no, you're, you're clean. One of you isn't, referring to Judas again to create that contrast. But he moves forward with this act of servanthood. And when it's done, he gives the explanation. Do you guys understand what was just done for you? 
You called me teacher. You called me Lord, which is right. That is what I am. He, he uses these terms of authority, these terms of power and significance. That is exactly who I am. That is exactly the role that I play. And yet, what have I chosen for you? I've chosen to serve you. And so if I'm greater than you, I'm your Lord, I'm your teacher, I'm your master, and I didn't demand to be served, then neither should you. So serve one another in the same way. And with that, we get this commission as the body of Christ to be people who live lives of complete selfless servanthood. It's remarkable. Now, a couple of implications for us before we wrap up when you think about this story. When you think about service, one of the things that this story should remind us of is that there's different types of service, at least two different types that I typically think of. On one hand, there's expected service, right? We have these social contracts and these, these agreements with the ways in which we interact with each other at different times where we expect to be served or to serve somebody else, right? Like the other day I was in Chipotle and they've got this whole like assembly line thing going on where this first person fix your your bowl, and then the next person puts everything on it, and then the last person works the cash register. And so I was working my way through the line, and the first two people had done their, their role, but nobody was at the cash register. So the person that was kind of second filled all that stuff, finished the food, and just slid it on down and just kept on working. And so I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I tried not to be that guy, right? I was, like, getting so frustrated. But I finally just was like, excuse me, can you, like, check me out so I can leave? And she goes, oh, well, I can't log in to the cash register. So I waited, waited some more until finally somebody came. And in that moment, I was frustrated. Why? Because I expected service, right? It was, it was part of the social agreement. We have these sorts of moments all the time. And the reality is when we're served in that way or when we serve that way, it's not that remarkable because it's expected. What Jesus is showing us is the value of unexpected service especially of those who carry a higher status for those who would serve those with maybe a lower status. Completely unexpected. Completely sacrificial. So what is it in your life that you're doing that is going into the direction of the unexpected of servanthood? What are those moments that you're feeling in your life to follow this example that goes above and beyond what people might expect of you to demonstrate the servant-heartedness that the body of Christ isn't called to embody. The other thing that this makes me think of, and I'll try to wrap this up with this, is that at the end of the day, when you think about servanthood, it's really about surrender, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the comparison game is about grabbing and acquiring, right? Gaining for yourself, grasping for something that's gonna in your mind, give you more value, more significance, more importance. It's about what you can get for yourself. Serving is about surrender. It's about letting all those things go. Letting go of your own wants, your own needs, your own desires, your own ambitions for others. And so what better describes your life right now? Your energies, your concerns, your worries, your focus. Are you trying to acquire and gain, improve your rank? Are you constantly overwhelmed by the weight of just comparing and never feeling like you, you measure up or making yourself feel better because you measure up better than the next person? Is that where you're spending most of your time? 
Or is your heart and your mind directed towards servanthood? Where you're laying your dreams, your ambitions, your desires aside through a life of surrender by considering the needs of others greater than your own. What describes you right now? And I want us to answer that question personally, yes, absolutely. But I also want us to think about it corporately. What, what changes in your life when you commit to a life of surrender and servanthood? What changes within a church? What changes within a community of faith when we discover that servanthood and part of its beauty is that we actually get to serve alongside one another, that we're an army of servants. What happens when we all begin to live that life of surrender? How many people get fed? How many people find warmth and shelter? How many orphans find a home? How many people come to know Jesus, not because they've been persuaded to believe in some doctrinal truth, but because they've been undone by the loving gesture of unexpected service. What happens when a community of faith comes before the suffering servant and surrenders all? May that be our focus and our goal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And to think of this example of servanthood that you have established through Christ. Father, that it may be a shining example to each and every one of us that we would faithfully pursue. Father, that you would give us clarity in our own lives as to how we can better serve those around us. And Father, that begins with just confessing that we need your grace because of all the different times that we compare ourselves to others, that we rank ourselves to others. Father, those tendencies, Father, we confess to you and ask that you would help us to set them aside. Father, that we wouldn't worship money, or relationships, or power, or status, or influence, God, because we know that ultimately all those things are so unfulfilling. But Father, that we would heed your words and, and truly acknowledge the value of being an army of people who are quick and ready and willing to serve others. So Father, help us to see as you would see. Help us to acknowledge and, and uh, visualize and understand the needs of the community around us in a way that prompts us towards action, prompts us towards humility, prompts us towards love. Father, we thank you above all that you suffered and you died for us, that you have shown us the full extent of your love by giving your life on the cross. And I would just pray that if there's anyone in this room or at home that has never fully grasped the extent of your love, Father, that we would acknowledge our need for it now and ask you to come in and to overwhelm us with your grace. We would surrender the things that we cling to so tightly so that we can find the loving embrace of a Savior who suffered and died for us. So, Father, in all these things we pray boldly and expectantly in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. And amen.